The year was 1541. John Calvin is writing Institutes of the Christian Religion. And he says, No one ever attains clear knowledge of self unless he has first gazed upon the face of the Lord and then turns back to look upon himself. Deeply rooted in all of us is an arrogance which persuades us that we are righteous, truthful, holy, and wise. Only clear evidence that we are unrighteous, deceitful, foolish, and vile will convince us of the contrary. We feel no such conviction if all we do is look upon ourselves and not upon the Lord. So did that put you on the defensive right out of the gate this morning? When we know God, we will know ourselves. If we do not know God, we cannot know ourselves. If we do not know God, we will not know ourselves because we are blind in our own arrogance. Deceitful arrogance. This is one of the reasons that I wanted to preach on the attributes of God when I had the opportunity to preach this year. And we, I started with John 17.3 last time. This is eternal life, to know God and His Son, Jesus Christ. To know God and His Son, Jesus Christ. This isn't the only thing that I want for you. But it's the only great thing that I do want for you. To know God. To know Him. So that your heart and your life is transformed. So that you will think and feel and act differently. This is the reason I'm a pastor. To walk alongside you so that you can know God. So that you grow in knowing God. You may feel like we're going to get into some deep water this morning. And I think there's no way to look at God and not feel like it's deep water. But stay with me. We're going to come back up. We're not going to stay there the entire time. If your Bibles are not open uh, to Exodus 3, the text that Gary read, if you please go ahead and open them to Exodus 3, verses 14 and 15 will be the two verses that I'd like to focus on this morning. These were part of the narrative that he read, Genesis, excuse me, Exodus, Exodus 3, verses 14 and 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all Generations. What is your name? 
Our thinking on a name is so different than it was in the time of Moses. Today, parents decide on names generally because they maybe they like the name or maybe there's a biblical reference to the name or maybe it's trendy or it's unique or, hey, we could have this name and we'll just spell it differently, but it sounds the same. There's all kinds of thoughts that go into the way that parents choose names today. But in the time of Moses, names had meaning. There was a meaning to the name. In fact, Moses' name had a meaning. It means to pull out or to draw out. Back in chapter 2 of Exodus, verses 5 and 6, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her, and then she opened it and saw the child. And behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And then down in verse 10, Pharaoh's daughter adopts the baby and names him Moses, which means because I drew him up out of the water. That was the meaning of the name of Moses. Names had meaning. They intended to communicate something about the person. So what Moses asks in Exodus 3 verse 13 is more than simply asking, what shall we call you? What is your name, Moses asks. But what he's really asking is, what shall I tell them about who you are? What should I tell them about who you are? I am who I am. I am sends you. God continues in verse 15. And when the Lord is in all caps, it means Yahweh. In verse 15, God continues, Yahweh has sent me to you. This is my name forever, Yahweh. What is your name? Yahweh. It means I am who I am. God explains the name Yahweh in this way. I am who I am. Now maybe you're thinking, okay, Yahweh, I don't quite track with what you're saying. I am who I am. That helps to explain it a little bit more, but I'm still not really tracking. I am who I am. What does that mean? We're going to spend the majority of our time talking about that today, the fuller meaning of I am who I am, so that we can know God more deeply. But first, I want to look at verse 15. What does God want the people of Israel to also know about his name, about his nature, about who he is? God says, tell Israel my name is Yahweh, but he doesn't stop there. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is my name forever. My memorial name to all generations. I've I've talked with my dad a number of times about how he viewed God growing up in the Roman church. And this, is, this was my dad's view. This was the way that he was raised. This was his view of God. Mighty God. 
powerful, exacting, distant, judge of the universe. Kind of like the mighty Oz, if you watch the Wizard of Oz, the mighty Oz behind the curtain. Powerful, in unknown power, hidden behind the curtain. That's how my dad grew up, thinking of who God is. Verse 15, what God says after his name, Yahweh, what does this signify? After his name, Yahweh, he says, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. What does this signify? God does not identify himself as an unknowable power hidden behind the curtain. He does not do that at all. He is not unknowable. He makes himself known to those that he has made in his image. And he has involved himself in a human family and he makes himself known through their names. A father and a son and a grandson. He involves himself in their family and he makes himself known through their family to all of humanity. He allows himself to be identified by the names of the patriarchs. That is what God does. And what do families do? What does your family do? Families eat together. They talk together. They know each other. They celebrate together, like Mother's Day. They feast together. This is what God has done in families. And he has involved us in his family. He has made himself known through family. In Genesis 17, God covenanted with Abram. So that was Abraham's name before God changed it. In Genesis 17, God covenanted with Abram. Do you know what Abram's name means? What the name Abram means? Exalted father. That's sort of ironic, isn't it? Because what do we know of Abram? How many children did he have? Zero. His name meant exalted father. God changed his name. So it's ironic that his name meant exalted father. It's prophetic because what God changed his name to means father of many nations. Abraham, father of many nations. That's what his name means. And that's what he was. Genesis 12, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the beginning of Israel as a nation, starting with one man, through his son and his grandson. In Exodus 3.15, our text, God identifies his name forever with this family. Abraham, his son Isaac, and his son Jacob. My name forever. My memorial name to all generations. And God completes... 
He fulfills his identification with Israel in the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, born of a virgin Jewish girl. Jesus, fully God and fully man. A Jewish man. Raised in a Jewish family. Thus he was able to say to the Samaritan woman at the well, salvation is from the Jews. He was Jewish. In a family. Fully God and fully man. God makes himself known, identifying himself with one man and his family. God makes himself known more fully in his son, who's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. That's how God has more fully made himself known. He didn't send his son to come as an angel. He sent his son to come as a man. To reveal himself to men and women. To us. He has made himself known. He does this so that we can know him. So that we can know the great I am. I am who I am. This is how God describes the meaning of his name Yahweh. It is good for us to grow in the knowledge of God. So it is necessary for us to grow in the understanding of I am. Synonyms of what God is expressing about his name, I am who I am. Synonyms would be I am because I am, or I I will be that I will be. I want to spend a little time describing I I am. In fact, the rest of our time. And I'd like to do this by looking at some of the attributes of God that are encompassed in I am who I am. And as we talk about these attributes, my objective, my, my desire, what I have been praying for you is not that you will be more fully equipped to answer questions on a theology exam. I don't care so much about that. But this is what I do care about. As we talk about who God is, I want you to grow not only in your knowledge of Him, but in your worship, in your affection, in your awe, in your reverence, and have an increasing desire to embrace Him. That's what I want to grow in you. I'm going to talk about these attributes in three groups. I'm going to spend most of my time on the first. Unity, infinite, and self-existent. Unity. Or in theology, maybe you've heard of this term, simplicity or divine simplicity. That's the theology term, the theological term. But it means unity. That's what we're talking about, unity. Is there one attribute that is more important than all the others? Is there an attribute that is your favorite or that you tend to gravitate to or that you tend to think on more than all other attributes? 
These questions are why I'm starting with unity or simplicity. One theologian helpfully describes unity as including two truths. First, God is numerically one, and as such, he is unique. God is numerically one, and as such, he is unique. In Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Yahweh is one. God is one. Later in Exodus 15.11, Who is like you, Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you? God is unique. He is one and he is unique. Second, God is unified in being in character. He is unified in being in character. So what does this mean? God is spirit, John 4. He is spirit. He is also invisible, Colossians 1. He is spirit and invisible. He cannot be divided into parts. He cannot be considered separate in divisible parts. The Protestant theologian Francis Turretin in the 1600s said, God is free from all composition and division. He cannot be divided. God is unified. He is a unified whole. He is always a whole. He is not made up of parts. He is always a unified whole. He is not a compilation of all of his attributes. When we study his attributes, they are not individual parts of God. So we've got a lot more Legos around our house now with, the two, with our two grandsons. When you look at all of those parts of the Legos... They're all the individual pieces. And they don't have meaning as individual pieces until you put them together as one. But when when I look at them, all of those individual pieces are real pieces, but they're meaningless until they come together as one. And so we have a temptation to think of God as all individual pieces. And yeah, they do have meaning when they come together as one. But you can take that Lego house or garage apart and their individual pieces are still real pieces. This is not the way to think of God. This is not God. He is always and only one. He is not individual pieces. He is not individual attributes. He is one most pure, one without parts, without members, without qualities. He is not many attributes coming together to make a whole. He is one indivisible essence. God is one. Now, we do learn and understand the attributes individually. We do. But they are all one in God. There is only one divine essence. We're going to understand the attributes individually, but they are one in Him. This is this can be a challenge to our thinking. In our human thinking, we can think or look at some of the attributes and think, well, mercy is like 180 degrees different than judgment and justice. And so 
you're either being merciful or you're giving judgment and justice. And so, you know, when, when Calvin does something or Ethan does something at home, if I'm giving him mercy, I'm choosing to not give judgment or justice. I give one or the other. And we can have a tendency to think that same way about God. He is one or the other. When I choose one, I forego the other. We are this way, aren't we? When we choose one, we forego the other. We are this way. And we can tend to think of God in this way. But this is not who he is. The theologian Herman Herman Bavink argued against those who said that God's attributes are individual parts that come together. He argued against those who said, all those individual Lego pieces, that's God. And they come together and they're one, but both are God. He argued against this. And MacArthur in his biblical doctrine book uh, references Bavink rightly, and he writes this. If righteousness, power, or love were only parts of God's essence, it could not be said that God was fully righteous, powerful, or loving, but only partially so. If righteousness, power, or love were only parts of God's essence, it could not be said that God was absolutely righteous, powerful, or loving, but only relatively so. God would then be changing in his essence since various attributes that make up his nature would fluctuate. Sometimes he would be justice. Other times he would emphasize his love. He would not be perfectly and absolutely loving and just every moment in time. Sometimes he would be love and sometimes he would be just. Do you see the problem with that? He is not sometimes love. He is always love. He is not sometimes just. He is always just. Is there an attribute that's more important than the others? Is there an attribute that you find yourself gravitating to more than others? Certainly there are circumstances in our life which will cause us to focus on a particular attribute of God. We see this in the Psalms, don't we? In deep lament or despair, the psalmist focuses on God's goodness or or his grace or his love. And he'll have an entire psalm, an entire prayer, an entire pouring out of his heart because he's lamenting or he's in despair. He does not know what to do. But we must be careful that we do not elevate one or some of God's attributes to the exclusion of others. As we worship God, as we think of God, our emotions, maybe what we've gone through in the past that has been a deep hurt, or what we're going through in the moment, or what we're worried about what what might happen in the future. They can cause our thinking to focus on one particular or favorite attribute and de-emphasize the rest. But this is not who God is. 
This is who we are, not who he is. I've talked with folks who have said God's primary attribute is love. And all that he does stems from his love for us. Amen. God is 100% love. And he is 100% all of his other attributes all of the time. Understanding the unity of God's perfections, his attributes, it is critical if we are to know God. I'm going to share five thoughts from MacArthur's biblical doctrine. And my hope in mentioning these is that they will bring clarification. That they will help you to think about this and to think rightly through this. Again, that they'll bring some clarity. Number one, God is fully each of his attributes. God is fully each of his attributes. If God were not fully each of his attributes all of the time, his nature would change from moment to moment. He would switch from being loving one moment to holy the next. He would be partly love, partly mercy, partly justice. So think of it with the Legos again. We have some red Legos, some green Legos, and some blue Legos. You take those and you build a garage. That garage is part green and part blue and part red. That is not God. God is 100% love. He is 100% mercy. He is 100% justice all of the time. God is fully each of his perfections all of the time. Second, God's attributes qualify each other. His justice is a holy justice. His love, a righteous love. His attributes qualify each other. Number three, God's attributes are active. Each of God's attributes are fully active in his essence. He is never passive or inactive in any aspect of his essence. Sometimes I build that garage, I don't use any of the blue Legos. That's not true of God. He is always active. All of his attributes are always active. All the time. God's attributes, number four. God's attributes should be understood and studied with one another. God's attributes should be understood and studied with one another. We should not understand one single attribute in isolation. Each perfection complements and is integrated with all the others. They all should be understood as influencing each other. Now, of course, when I preach, I only have time to talk about one at a time. But I want you to be thinking of the attribute that we're talking about or the attribute that you're reading about in the scripture or the attribute that you're meditating on or the attribute that you're reading about in a theology book. I want you to think of that in light of all of the attributes of God. He is not just one attribute at any particular time. He is all of his attributes all of the time. Fifth, last, God's perfections are reflexive. His perfections are reflexive. That means his attributes are focused on him. Each is active towards God as their perfect object. What God is, he is to and for himself before his perfections are directed towards anyone else. God's attributes are focused towards him before they're focused towards you and I. 
His attributes are perfect and they're always focused on the perfect object, which is himself. They're focused on himself before they're focused on you and I. I am is unified. The unity of God, divine simplicity. God is one. He is unique. We must not consider one attribute or a couple of attributes alone. He is 100% all of his perfections all of the time. I am is infinite. That's our second point. I am is infinite. His eternity and his immensity. First Kings chapter 8. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. In this group of attributes, I include attributes which necessarily support and clarify each other as they explain, I am who I am. God is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. God does not change. He has been and will always be the same. God is perfect. He has been and will be perfect. So if God is eternal and he does not change and he's perfect, he must be eternally perfect. God is eternally perfect. If God changes, he would not be eternally perfect. If God changes, there would be something that's added to him or something that's taken away from him. And there's one version that would be better than another. He would have changing versions of who he is. And you might think one version is better than what I think. But he would be constantly changing. And he doesn't change. If something is added to the infinite... How about this for the philosophy meditation? If something is added to the infinite, it is not infinite. Nothing can be added to that which is infinite. There is nothing that can be added to God. He is perfect and complete and whole and has been for all eternity past. The Puritan Stephen Charnock writes, God is unchangeable. In his essence and his nature and his perfections, he is what he always was and always will be. Because he is eternal, he is eternally the same. Same. He does not and will not change. He's immutable, unchangeable. Some Christians think that in the New Testament, God shows more mercy and grace than God in the Old Testament who showed wrath and judgment. God in the Old Testament is wrath. God in the New Testament is grace and love in Jesus Christ. God in the New Testament hates sin just as much as God in the Old Testament. God does not change. God has not changed. He's the same yesterday as he is today, as he will be tomorrow. God in the Old Testament is the same as God in the New Testament, the same as he is today. 
Charnock. Man after the fall can ascribe nothing constant to himself but his own inconsistency. He says the only thing that's constant about us is that we're inconsistent. That's the only thing we can depend on. As Christians, what are we striving for? That theological term, progressive sanctification. What are you and I striving for? That we would be changed. We strive for change. We strive to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We are wanting to be changed. I don't want to be the same. I don't want to be the same man tomorrow as I am today. I want to be changed into the image of Christ. But God who is perfect... I don't want him to change. And I'm thankful he does not change. But here's what happens. Because we are changing. And because we have inconsistency in us. What we experience in our own inconsistency. We can have a tendency to attribute to God. We can think that he changes. And he doesn't. He is unique. He is unlike us. God is infinite. The theologian Louis Burkhoff defines infinity as the perfection of God by which he is free from all limitations. He is free from all limitation. David tried to express this in Psalm 36 when he wrote, Your steadfast love, Yahweh, it extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save. God is infinite. He has no limits in character. No limit in his attributes. He is perfect. Which is why Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. God has no beginning and no end. He is eternal. He's eternal in his perfection. Charnock again. Eternity is a denying of God any measure of time. He's not bound by time. The essence of God cannot be bounded by any place. So it is not to be limited by time. As his infinity is to be everywhere, so it is his eternity to be always. He is everywhere and he has existed and will exist always. I've been trying to meditate on that over the course of this week. I can't wrap my mind around the infinity of God. But this has been a joy to me. I was thinking about Moses. He's, uh, I was talking with someone about this earlier, a, a couple days ago. You know, what must it have been like for Moses to see a bush that was burning, but it was not being consumed by the fire? And I was thinking, how spectacular that is. And I started meditating on the infinity of God. That bush is like nothing for him. That's like child's play for him. He's infinite. And these things in my life, that I worry about, that I'm concerned about, that I have anxiousness about. These are all child's play for God. He's mighty. He's sovereign. He's infinite. 
And he works all these things that are going in my life for my good because he is infinite. There is nothing that is outside of his control. There is nothing in your life that is outside of the control of God. I am who I am. How does a finite, time-bound mind comprehend an infinite, eternal God? God must do this. And so I have been praying for you this week that the Spirit of God enlightens the eyes of your heart that you know the greatness of His power towards us who believe. That you will know the greatness of God's power towards you. How does a finite, time-bound mind know an infinite, eternal God? God must do this. And we must respond. How do you respond to the infinite God? Come humbly. Come humbly and worship. Pray that he enlightens the eyes of your heart to know him. And as you know him, you will glory in him and you will become more like him. And your worship will be more pure. That you will be more perfect as he is perfect. I am is your God. For the rest of eternity, we will continue to grow in our knowledge of the perfections of God because He is infinite. It's not like you and I have all these questions of, about God and who He is and what was going on. And, and, and when we go to heaven and we're face to face, we understand everything there is to understand about who God is. That is not how it's going to be. Because He is infinite. We will never exhaust learning about who He is and His glory and His wonder and being in awe of who He is. For all of eternity, you are going to be in awe of the glory of God. Amen. Amen. And So let's not wait for eternity future. Let's encourage one another today to be in awe of the infinite glory of our Heavenly Father. I am is unified. He is infinite. He is self-existent. God is self-existent. He has His being of Himself. He has no dependence on any other. Matthew Henry expresses how God is unique from us in his self-existence. He writes, the greatest and best man in the world, the greatest and best man in the world, he must say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But God says absolutely, I am that I am. I am because I am. God exists in himself. He is self-sufficient. He is dependent upon no one or no thing. Therefore, he is all-sufficient. He's not contingent upon anything. 
He's not contingent upon anyone. Everyone is dependent upon him. Jesus in John 5, just as the Father has life in himself, the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. I am who I am. One commentator writes, God's name signifies I am the only being, the root of all beings, and at the greatest distance from not being, that is eternal self-existence. Charnock, I am indicates that I am in every moment which I was and will be in all moments of time. Nothing can be added to me. Nothing can be detracted from me. There is nothing superior to him which can detract from him. Nothing desirable can be added to him. He is self-existent, self-dependent, self-sufficient. He alone. I am is your God. First Corinthians 8. God existed before all things, and through him all things exist, and for him all things exist. Romans 11. God depends on nothing. All things depend on him. To him be the glory forever. Jeremiah 14.7. God does everything for his own name. Revelation 22, God is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So what are we to do considering these deep attributes of God? Unity, infinite, unchanging, eternally perfect, self-existent, self-sufficient, these glorious perfections of God. I don't want you to get bogged down in terms and definitions. But I do want you to understand. I do want you to see. I do want you to know who God is. Because as you look upon him, just as Calvin said at the beginning, as you look upon him and as you see yourself more, let it draw your heart to him because of how glorious he is, because of how wonderful he is. As your awe increases of who God is, let your worship increase. I want you to know him. Even though we're finite, even though we cannot fully grasp all there is to know about him, we can know him. And as excellent as God is, as perfect as he is, as much as we grow to know about him, we say that God is even more than this. All that we know about God's infinity, we must realize there is infinitely more to be learned. We will never exhaust the knowledge of the glory of God. Let it consume us. Let it consume your heart. Let it wash over your heart. Let your heart glory. And so how will you respond? How will you respond as you grow in knowing his perfections. 
Let your heart be overwhelmed with awe and reverence and embrace. Not half-hearted. Not with hypocrisy. But come to Him. Come humbly. Worship with your whole heart. Serve Him with pure affection. He calls you. He wants you to know Him. He wants you to worship Him. He calls you to His table to feast with Him. And so we come. We who are of the family of God, we come to feast with our Heavenly Father